Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Now, before I introduce our host, our interviewee. Uh, to, I, I just want to remind you, if you're enjoying our podcast, to please swing over to iTunes and leave us a review. I would so much appreciate it. Okay. Today we're talking to my friend and IFM colleague, uh, Dr. Joel Evans. Uh, he is the director of the Center for Functional Medicine in Stanford, Connecticut, um, in the same county as me, actually, I think, right? Just around the corner. Uh, and, and you're also the medical director at KBMO Diagnostics, which provides state-of-the-art food sensitivity testing. In addition, he serves as the director of curriculum development of the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. Uh, he is a member of the senior faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine and continues to serve as the external lead of the IFM Advanced Practice Module in Hormone Health since its inception. He has a special interest in breast cancer and serves as a medical director of the Keepa Breast Foundation. Dr. Evans is peer reviewer for alternative therapies in health and medicine and global advances in health and medicine. And he's a member of the editorial advisory board of holistic primary care. He recently authored a chapter on nutrition and sociogenomics. Uh, Dr. Evans, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you for having me. I know. It's just very, very nice to connect with you. It always is. And as we were just talking, we rarely, if ever, see each other in Connecticut. It's usually yeah. at conferences, but it's nice to have this time to catch up with you. As usual, you're up to, you know, just a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, in addition to, you know, very active patient practice. Um, so I was surprised, I have to admit, when I found out that you were the chief medical officer over at KBMO. So you're in, you're in OBGYN by training. You've got a bustling, really highly regarded practice here in Connecticut. You're on IFM faculty. And, you know, you were actually, you were doing that really cool work at the UN that you and I talked about once upon a time. So not only do you have a really full plate, but this seemed like a little bit of a left turn that you jumped into KBMO. And, and I could be totally wrong. Maybe it was a direct center choice for you, but I just, I want to hear. It was a right turn. It was a right turn. It was a right turn. Yeah. Right. Okay. But just talk to me about it, how you decided to, to jump in with KBMO. Well, you know, what I would say is, as even the most beginner student of functional medicine knows, inflammation is probably the most important driver of all the complex chronic disease that we see in our practice. And one of the most important drivers of inflammation is inflammation that comes from eating foods to which we're sensitive. Yeah. And the problem has always been, how do I identify those foods? Right. And the traditional functional medicine teaching has always been to use the elimination diet. And the elimination diet has really been in use and taught by IFM ever since the very, very beginning. Yes. And that's because we understood the importance of triggers for different issues that come from food. So we had to use a diet that would eliminate 
the most common foods to which people are sensitive and then slowly reintroduce them and see if the reintroduction sparked a return of symptoms. So that's sort of the basic understanding that I've always had about how important foods are in creating inflammation and creating chronic complex illness. However, in clinical practice, I always had a hard time keeping patients motivated to stay on the elimination diet. Mm. So the elimination diet for me in practice was very, very challenging. And maybe, and I hate to say this on the air, but maybe if I was lucky, I got 50% compliance. Wow. And so I've always been looking for the right food sensitivity test because why have patients eliminate common foods that people are allergic to or sensitive to when they themselves may not be sensitive to them? So, you know, take soy, for example. Maybe a particular patient isn't sensitive to soy, so to make them eliminate all of that through the elimination diet just never made sense to me. So I just happened to come across this particular test, and I saw that it was called the food inflammation test, or the FIT test, or the FIT test. And I happened to run into the CEO at a conference, and I, you know, we just struck up a conversation and I said, you know, this really intrigues me because I understand the importance of inflammation as one of the main upstream causes of everything that's wrong with my patients. And tell me why you call this the food inflammation test. And he explained how this test is the only one out there that actually looks for foods that trigger inflammation not just foods that trigger some sort of immune response. And that really resonated with me because I've always been an educator at IFM that has looked for the right food sensitivity test. And I will tell you that to me, food sensitivity testing has been essentially the wild west that it's been very, very hard to identify a good test that was reproducible and correlated with symptoms and didn't always come up with a hundred foods that people had to avoid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I liked about this test was number one, that it found foods that triggered inflammation because we know the importance of inflammation. And number two, it didn't come back with a lot of positives. Maybe there would be 10 or 12 foods on average that people had to avoid out of testing 132 foods and additives. So that was important to me. The other thing that was important to me is that it tested for the common food additives that people use or are exposed to. It checks for things like aspartame, and then it also is a way to diagnose leaky gut because if the test comes back showing a sensitivity to candida, then that means that leaky gut is present because 
we all have candida in our GI tract. And if we have increased intestinal permeability and things are passing through this barrier that shouldn't, like candida, we create this immune response. And if we see the immune response to candida, that makes a diagnosis of increased intestinal permeability. So it was the ability to do two tests in one, that there were not a lot of positives. So it was the elimination piece would be easier than other tests. And number three, that it identified inflammation through a unique testing sequence where they're looking at both complement and IgG one through four, which is also unique. Let me, all right, I want to, we're going to talk about that because that does separate fit from every other IgG test out there. So you did your fair share of experimenting. There's a lot of ways to, um, there are a lot of tests out there to diag- that, that, that suggest yes. they diagnose food sensitivities. And so you used your share of IgGs and some of the other yes. uh, emerging tests. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, and what's interesting is if, and we can certainly get to this, um, when we talk about clinical data, but the clinical data on our test is better than the published data on the other forms of testing as well. All right, I'm going to definitely ask you that specifically. Why is it better? And we'll we'll talk about it. Um, well, so let's talk. So, what is special about the fit test? I mean, talk to me about what they've designed. I mean, go, you know, go into some detail on why this test that, as you said, looks at IgG, but now it's actually looking at complement as well. You know, first of all, what it is, and um, you know how how they determined it's actually more reliable. Okay, so um, we all know that what we're talking about are food sensitivities and not food allergies. And that- Yes, good, good point. But that's an important point. Yes, thank you. Allergy, IgE, type one hypersensitivity, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about anaphylaxis. That's all handled through um, allergists. Yes, actually define, just define it. I think it's good that we back up here for a second. Define this delayed hypersensitivity. So what we're talking about is a, um, a food intolerance or non-IgE food sensitivity. And that's primarily through IgG 1 through 4 as opposed to an IgE reaction. IgE reactions happen roughly 5% of the population has an IgE reaction and roughly three to 5% um, will have these food intolerance type reactions. However, when we look, and that, that's just based on literature through conventional allergy literature. But if we flip it um, and we look at what people are experiencing, mm-hmm. a third of the US population feels that they have a- Conservatively. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's from JAMA. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And what happens is that when you throw in leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability, almost 100% of patients that have increased intestinal permeability have 
a food reaction. And if we look at intestinal permeability as a continuum, even when people have a fully intact intestinal membrane so that there is zero leaky gut, 2% of food fragments, 2% of ingested food fragments actually cross in an improper way and expose the immune system to undigested protein. Right. right. So that's why people have food sensitivities, right? So what happens is that, you know, our immune system gets exposed to food particles that are too big, undigested, and that's not the food's fault. What it is, it's usually due to problems with digestive health. So for example, not enough hydrochloric acid or, not, or poor enzyme function, so that you're presenting undigested food fragments further distal in the, col- in the intestinal tract so that those cross. So it's really the primary upstream cause of all of these food sensitivities is the amount of poorly digested food fragments that wash through or are propelled through the gut. Therefore, when we're talking about upstream treatments or root cause medicine for whatever the inflammation-based illness is that we're treating, yes, we have to identify the foods that are causing inflammation and eliminate them. But at the same time, we have to do a 5R program to heal the gut. So we are not going to just keep this hamster wheel turning with different foods because we'll be, we have to stop these undigested protein fragments from being exposed to the immune system. So to answer your question about what happens, so the immune system gets exposed to these protein fragments that are too large, or they're exposed to lipopolysaccharides from bacterial cell membranes, for example. They can be exposed to fungi, whatever it is, and we create an antibody response. Now, in the case of lipopolysaccharides, which are triggers of inflammation themselves, we create this antibody response to various antigenic molecules on this lipopolysaccharide. And sometimes, just by pure random sequence or random act, that these sequences are the same as on the surface of different foods. So by creating an antibody to a lipopolysaccharide, you create an antibody to a food and therefore become sensitive to a food. And that's why, for example, we can see responses or reactions to foods that someone says they never ate. And the funniest story is that I had a rabbi come in and he was sensitive to clams. And he said, I've never had a clam. I've been torture all my life. This is impossible. There's a problem with your test. I want my money back, the whole bit. And so then I explained this concept of you know, molecular mimicry, and he was fine with it. 
But the piece that's really, really funny is somebody came to me, another patient, and he said, I've never, and all same thing, I've never eaten clams. And I said, well, can I tell you a funny story? There was this rabbi that came in and I went through that story and he goes, well, I'm glad you told me that story because I'm also a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? A rabbi walked into the doctor's office. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Two rabbis walked into the doctor's office. Exactly. So Both reacting to Feel free to use that anytime because it's been replicated. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so what happens is, so these, um, this antibody response gets triggered through um, IgG. Now, the complement system is a separate system, but also very interrelated. Well, and I just want to point out that this is unique to KBMO. And you moved away from the others just to back up the other tests because you were identifying, you were finding a lot of false right. positives. So the IgG yeah. alone wasn't as accurate because you would get a lot of false positives. A lot of IgG can react to food and we don't know the clinical significance of that. Yes, that's, yes, we do see that. Okay, so then these guys, so, so KBMO right. so started KBMO, to- KBMO, and so this is, sort of a, a fine piece here, but I think it's important. It's important, yeah. Is the type of complement that um, we're talking about, which is the C3D form or, or part of it, is that 30 years ago, KBMO, or I should say KBMO owns the cell line responsible, the only FDA-approved cell line for producing C3D. So because now the marketplace is understanding the importance of C3D, we may see other labs that come up with C3D testing, but ours is the only one that has the actual approval and certified accurate C3D molecule. Hmm. So that's an important test. I mean, that's an important piece that, that, that listeners need to understand. That's interesting. So what happens with, with complement is complement is an enhancer for the immune system. Basically, what it does is it functions almost like one of these infrared target systems that the military uses to find military targets as you get somebody out there to shine a light so they, they know where to direct their weapons. So what complement does, specifically C3D, is it upregulates the inflammatory response and helps the immune system know what to target. And so you have foreign invaders or foods that the C3D attaches to, and then the immunoglobulin knows what to attach to, and then you have the C3D attaching to the immunoglobulin and to the food, and you get a complex. And that complex is most active in producing pro-inflammatory cytokines. Mm. So by identifying these part, the IgG molecules that are attached to C3D, you can identify the foods that cause the most amount of inflammation. So what they do is they put food in a plate and then they wash the patient's blood over the plate 
and then they send a target to see what sticks. And what they look for is not just sending an IgG target because if there's I, if the patient's blood has an IgG molecule targeted to a food, it'll stick to that food. But they also have an anti-C3D mm. target. And that has to be attached to the IgG. So they send a target for an anti-IgG, anti-C3D complex. And if that lights up, that's how you know they're sensitive to the food. And so that's the way they identify the foods that cause the most significant amount of inflammation. And that's why clinically, by eliminating those foods, patients have such dramatic responses. So what's the background on how they figured it out? And, you know, where is there, are there basic science papers out there that, that support this mechanism? Absolutely are basic science papers um, that, that support that. And um, I, uh, I will tell you that the, the paper itself cites a lot of other papers. So, there's an original paper um, on this, um, and that is in Alternative Therapies in January and February of 2015. So it's relatively recent. And it's about the relevance of using C3D immunoglobulin G testing in clinical intervention. And the first author is Damien Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. And there's a whole list of references in that paper as well. They, and, do, they do. I was I was just reviewing it again. I'm familiar with that paper, and you, there is a nice discussion generated there. And if you need to refresh yourself on the compliment cascade, <laughs> they've he, they've they've reprinted it and kind of outlines where where C3D shows up. Right. So, and there's a lot of references there. And as mm -hmm. I said. The key piece here is that we're the only lab that has the certified source of C3D. That's very, that's really interesting. Okay, so needless, we will absolutely link to that reference in the show notes from uh, Dr. Evans' podcast. We'll talk, we'll, let, we'll talk to me about that paper. I mean, it was a pretty interesting study. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I think that the, basically this was just to see if you could change levels by eliminating the food. So it really wasn't much of what we do in practice, which is a 5R program. This was just purely a single intervention of eliminating the foods. And so by eliminating the foods, we were able to see that that changed over time. And so that is sort of the first step of saying, yes, it's good to test this, but we also know that by removing the source of inflammation that you will then decrease the number of foods to which you're sensitive and the foods that you are sensitive to no longer create an inflammatory response. And they tracked clinical outcome as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So patients started feeling better. But I'll tell you what's, what's nice about this test is that it's both 
tracking clinical outcome and then tracking um, you know, the test. What I'd say is a little bit of a weakness of this study is that this was lengthy. So this was 10 months. Right. That's and, right. And, you know, I don't do that in practice. Yeah. An elimination diet for 10 months, even if it's a, an abridged elimination diet. Right. It's still an elimination diet for 10 months. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, no, no. So you, you can't, you can't do that. Now, I would say that I do it for six to 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, the, the thinking that I use is um, if you look at the half-life of IgG, it's roughly three weeks. So if you want to reduce half the antibodies, it's three weeks of elimination. If you want to reduce three quarters or another half, it would be two have lives and so on. So I like to go a minimum of two half lives, but I really like to go four half lives, which is 12 weeks. And are you getting reasonable patient compliance for 12 weeks? Well, I do, but I, I'm able to get good compliance only because I see my patients at least once a month. And, you know, this is where my position as, you know, director of curriculum development with the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy is helpful because in order to sort of best practice functional medicine, coaches can be so important in this process. So it's about looking at a list of foods, and I, as the doctor, <coughs> can say, eliminate them all. But then if they sit with the coach and they say, you know what, coffee came up and I cannot give up my coffee. Um, it's up to the coach to work with patients to come up with a strategy so that they will ultimately get to eliminating everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the busy practitioner may not always have a chance to do that. Mm -hmm. So the way my compliance is increased is through number one, frequent visits, number two, the use of coaches so that patients can feel that what they're about to do is doable and that it's not, it's not overwhelming because it can be overwhelming at times. Right. When, when you look at the triad of um, gluten, dairy, and eggs, which is unfortunately very common. I call that the three-legged stool. Mm -hmm. When you look, you know, avoiding gluten, dairy, and eggs all at once um, really can be overwhelming. So it's important to hold hands through that process. And then when you can do that, then they can see the positive changes and then it becomes a self-fulfilling um, way for them to see results and then they want to continue on so on on you know there's the top eight antigenic foods i mean those are ige's but you know wheat dairy soy egg you know as you've mentioned those are commonly there are you seeing often in your patients when you do their baseline report before they've ever done an elimination these most common foods show up, you know, as, as often yeah, as we might expect to? They do. 
you know, I, I'd say it's the, the gluten dairy egg for sure. I see a lot of curcumin and we're one of the few labs that test for curcumin, but I see a lot of curcumin sensitivity and that I attribute to the fact that so many of our patients are taking curcumin supplements and have leaky gut. Hmm. Interesting. So and that's, that's a really important thing to identify and then have them stop taking the curcumin. And the line they always get is, well, I thought that was good for you. Yeah. I, I say it's good for most people. It's just not good for you. Well, it's not good for you right now. I mean, exactly. let's, yeah. Okay. Talk about that reintroduction. Yeah. So it's, it's really not good for you. So, and that's only for now, right? It's not good for you for now. And curcumin is something that when we heal the gut and eliminate the curcumin, it often doesn't persist. Sometimes with gluten and dairy, it can take more than three months to right. defeat the sensitivity. But you, yes. but most of the time, eighty to ninety percent of the time, you can eliminate a curcumin sensitivity in three months. Okay, well, that's real. That is good to know. Um, and yeah, that's my clinical experience as well with regard to gluten and dairy. That they may be deal breakers long term, or you mm -hmm. know, the you know, or just the dose, the amount of exposure that they might be able to handle, right, um, is lowered. So. Talk about, I know you've got some cases you're going to talk about, but I, I, I want to know as, as the, you know, the um, external lead, as a, as a significant player in the hormone module, I, by the way, I need to go to the hormone module again. We were just talking about modules. I saw you guys, I saw you guys in one of their first iterations oh, when, yeah. you were, when you were in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was right after Mardi, Mardi Gras. I mean, there yeah. were still... There's still many drunk people sort of leftovers yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from the from the week before. Yeah, but it I was remember. A, I remember walking around the sidewalks stepping over people. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. I know it's not a commonly encountered happening, say if you're yeah. you know, in, in Connecticut. Um yeah, but it was a great module and and I definitely need to go because that was a, that was quite a while ago. Um what's the relationship between food sensitivities and hormone health. I mean, you, you've got to have a better understanding, a more sensitive understanding than you know, it's you know, such most a, of us. It's such a simple explanation. Okay. And that is anything that stresses the body will cause hormone imbalance or hormone disequilibrium. And so one of the continued stressors can be eating foods to which we're sensitive. A stressor can be being exposed to environmental toxins. A stressor can be emotional stress. All of these things create a stress on the body, which then causes hormone imbalance. And specifically, food sensitivity will drive inflammation, as we've spoken about multiple times, and will also cause adrenal stress. Mm -hmm. And food sensitivities can create autoimmune disease or make immune health an issue because 
you end up with molecular mimicry from foods that cross the intestinal lining. And instead of just having a food um, or reacting to a food because you had a bacterial lipopolysaccharide that mimics the food, well, now you can be attacking the thyroid, for example. So it can affect hormones in many ways, but the primary driver, the primary way is by creating inflammation and inflammation affects the adrenals, inflammation affects the thyroid, and inflammation ultimately affects sex hormones mm -hmm. and causes problems with sex hormone production, lowers testosterone production in men, creates issues with estrogen progesterone balance, leads to breast cancer, leads to fibroids, leads to endometriosis. So when people come in with breast cancer, fibroids, or endometriosis, which people see as primarily hormone-driven events, we talk about the role that food sensitivity can play, leading to inflammation, leading to increased prostaglandin E2. Increased prostaglandin E2 directly drives the growth of endometriosis and fibroids, and inflammation directly uh, drives breast cancer growth. Yeah, that's right, it does. Yep, that's a nice succinct explanation so it's fundamental in the root cause approach to all hormone imbalances yeah. yeah yeah hormone balances and beyond talk to me about um some good cases in your practice where kbmo was a big decision maker for you or, or big help i i i'd say that what's interesting here is the different, what I would say, clinical categories that are, that are so important here. So because my practice has transitioned from primarily women's health to now every aspect of functional medicine where I'm treating men, I'm treating children, it's just been amazing. That's really good to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't realized that. Yeah. And it, it's really been amazing how important this test has been and how now I would say almost every single patient that I see, every new patient gets a food sensitivity test. And, you know, what's interesting is if we look at the women's health aspect of it, we already touched upon fibroids, we touched upon endometriosis, we touched upon breast cancer. But what we didn't touch upon would be miscarriage. Mm. So miscarriage is increased in, in a, in a pro-inflammatory state. And as we said, one of the main causes of the inflammatory state are food sensitivities. Right. When we talk about conception, and a preconception visit and optimizing pregnancy outcome, almost all pregnancy complications are made worse in the setting of inflammation. So if we want to reduce premature labor, if we want to reduce preeclampsia, we need to work on reducing inflammation. And again, what's special about this test is it finds the foods that cause inflammation. So I use it in all of my preconception visits. Mm. The study, you know, migraines, 
fatigue, inflammation, a major issue with fatigue, a major issue with mitochondrial dysfunction, and all issues uh, you know, for neurologic health, cognitive impairment, getting rid of inflammation, depression we now know is inflammation in the brain. So people are coming in with depression or anxiety that has been refractory to other forms of treatment. And just by eliminating foods, their mood is lifting. Yeah. So it's really been a wonderful intervention. And at this point, if I had to pick one test, my most important single test in my practice, it would be this test. Because by identifying what I need to do to reduce inflammation in the body, that's the home run. I mean, think about it. People are eating three times a day. If they're eating the wrong foods, they're creating an inflammatory response three times a day. Imagine how much better they'll feel when they stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. That's um, that's a really important reminder. and in preconception, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, the YouTube, I mean, it's, it, I think I'll, I'll, we're all thinking about foods, but I appreciate how, uh, you know, this might zero in on the, on the heavy lifters as far as inflammation well, the goes. The also is inflammation. Yeah. Based. I mean, every women's health issue, every men's health issue, cardiology, cardiovascular disease, inflammation based, right? So whatever my patient suffers from, they'll improve by limiting the foods that create inflammation. Well, thank you for, you know, the synopsis on KBMO and what prompted you to jump on board as their medical director. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Can uh, I just say one more thing? Yes, you can. Absolutely. Yeah, we're not done yet, but yes. Oh, and I have another question for you too, but yes, do add one more thing. I just wanted to talk to you about our clinical study, which just came out. Yes. Oh, by all means, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big deal. It's a huge deal because, and I just thought of this, so I just got this data yesterday, and I'm like, I just thought of the tagline um, already, which is that this study now takes this whole KBMO fit test, and it moves it from biologic plausibility to clinical efficacy. And, And in terms of laboratory testing, that's the holy grail, right? Not just biologic plausibility, but clinical efficacy. So this was a test in patients with IBS. Okay. And so they looked at 100 patients with IBS over three months. And what they did was they just did a general um, healthy eating plan in the control group and the study group, they eliminated the foods that were positive on the FIT test. And so there's something called the IBS symptom severity scale. Mm -hmm. And so all patients had a high score, the number greater than 175, which means that they were symptomatic enough. And of those 100 patients, what we found was a significant decrease in score 
of over 125 points when they eliminated our, the foods from our test, the control group, which had just general nutritional counseling, had a drop of 46 points. And that is a tremendous difference. If you look at food sensitivity data in IBS groups, for example, that IgG alone, the best of those studies have a 100-point decrease. So this is 26% better than the IgG alone. And most importantly is we had a decrease of 0.47, of almost 0.5 in CRP, hmm. which is, as we all know, the marker of inflammation. That's pretty interesting. Did you publish this yet? No, this just came back now um, from, uh, from the study, and now we're going to write together and make the paper. Oh, that's great. That's, and, so did you stratify for type of I, IBS? No. This was general. It was randomized. Just um, referral from any healthcare practitioner, a patient with IBS that had a high score. And the reason we did that was because um, we wanted the, the effectiveness of this test to be studied with what people see, which is people that walk in the door. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted the inclusion criteria to be as wide as possible, which is basically sick patients. Now, when we go back and analyze this data and look for subgroups, yes. sure, we may find in a certain subgroup that's even more effective, for example. Right, that would be interesting to know. Right. I mean, in a lot of our patients who have got IBS have SIBO. Right. Interesting to see if you can tease that out. But the most important part is when people walk into your office, either with a pre-existing diagnosis or of IBS, or you make a diagnosis of IBS, this test has value. That's what I wanted. That's the question I wanted answered. And that's the question that was answered emphatically. Huh. All right. Well, I look forward to, we all look forward to the publication. And would you keep me in the loop so that I can um, oh, of course. Pop, it on your, pop it on your show notes and I'd yes. like to read it myself. Yeah. That's Absolutely. Good. Oh, great. Yeah. And so that you also looked at CRP. Did you look at any other? We looked at homocysteine, and uh, homocysteine dropped as well. Huh. And um, the other thing we looked at was um, sort of office visits, which decreased over 50% for symptomatic office visits. How long was the study? Three months. Three months. Okay. Well, I know everybody will look forward to to reading about it, and I, I'm particularly curious about subgroups. I mean, if this, you know, could you use this in, instead of a FODMAP, or would you use it concurrently with a FODMAP? And yeah, so that's a good question. Thoughts. They use this concurrently with the FODMAP. Okay. They didn't in the study, however. They just did. Correct. Fit. Right, because this was about sort of the most common denominator least sophisticated practitioner and you only have one test. Yep. Yep. So you know what you just made an an important comment that you use the KBMO and you'll layer that into another yep. therapeutic diet such as FODMAP. Yep. Okay. Yep.
And I think that's important because, yes. yeah, you don't want to create more inflammation when you've already got debuff. By continuing to consume FODMAPs. Correct. Or by, no, by, you're already doing a FODMAP elimination for the SIBO and then you don't want to create more inflammation by eating a food that oh right 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 that, inflammation. that's positive on the yeah. on the fit yep i got it i got it we do that routinely as well look at right. FODMAP right. plus reactions um okay so in the in the final few minutes i just want to pick your brain as a you know as a senior ifmer and long time integrative doc in our space. Um, lots of people listening to this are clinicians transitioning into functional medicine. And, you know, just share with me some words of wisdom for these folks, you know, some pearls from, from your experience for these folks making this amazing transition. Well, what I would say is, don't get discouraged and keep your eye on the prize because you know that functional medicine is the right way to take care of your patients. And unfortunately, it doesn't quite fit in well with the existing healthcare system yet. And there are a lot of very bright people trying to make functional medicine a better fit for insurances and re the reimbursement process. It's just not there yet. Don't lose sight of the prize and your colleagues may not believe in you. You may get comments that you're in this just for the money because you're just selling supplements. It may mean spending more time. It may mean making less money. There are lots of reasons why one can easily be derailed and not continue on this path of practicing functional medicine. So I would just say that it takes a long time to learn how to do this well. But if you keep to it, you will get that level or achieve that level of expertise, your patients are gonna start getting better quicker. They will not only thank you, but love you for it. You will get that internal reward from practicing medicine authentically because most of us practice or are changing our practice to functional medicine because we know that conventional medicine doesn't approach things in the right way. And so you'll get that inner reward as well for practicing in an authentic way and reconnecting with why you went into medicine in the first place. Right. Amen. Thanks for that. Well, Dr. Evans, it's just been a delight to reconnect with you and uh, talk to you about, about your journey and your work with KBMO. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to congratulate all of your listeners for spending their free time to learn about functional medicine. 